Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original. I do feel like I wish he'd been there to see me go through that because, yeah, it's hard to describe. I just, it's something, I don't know, it's women who've gone through childbirth, there's no experience like it. And you, you do feel like an absolute warrior after you go through it. And I think for your husband to see you go through something like that, it does probably alter how he sees you in his mind hopefully for the better um, and I think I would hope that probably there's a lot of men that would have a lot more respe- respect and admiration even than they did before for their wives or partners once they see them go through something like that and I feel like I didn't get that he wasn't there to see that he knows he has an idea of what it must have been like because I don't shut up talking about it <laughs> and I give out yards to him after but he didn't get to witness it and I kind of feel like that was something we missed out on um, as a couple. Hi there and welcome to Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original series. I'm Suzanne Kane, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts Sue Murphy and Alison Curtis. It's a podcast inspired by an Instagram post which asked whether anyone out there would tell the real stories of those who have been affected by COVID-19 restrictions in maternity hospitals. Well, we will. Hopefully we can give people around the country the right space to share their own experiences and talk about something which just shouldn't be taboo. And these stories deserve to be shouted and definitely not whispered. So we will hear from someone every week who's been affected in a very different way from women who had what you would call a normal birth on their own to the partners and the healthcare workers too. We could not get over the amount of women that got in touch with us since episode one was published. We really couldn't. And thank you to everybody who got in touch. There were so many stories um, that people shared with us and we really appreciated. And we wanted to share some of those with you now. Um, a woman named Emma got in touch and her email goes like this. Um, I got sent some information about your podcast by one of my followers after I posted a snippet about our experience, our birth experience during the pandemic. We welcomed identical triplet girls into our family in May. 2020, which was already a high-risk pregnancy and I had to go it alone. It was the single most traumatic thing I have been through and a year on, I still struggle to speak out loud as my emotions betray my voice and I get emotional. I felt like I was living in a twilight zone where nobody is talking about this stuff. Are they in their baby bubble and just not affected by it anymore? Should I just shut up about it and be grateful my babies are here safe and sound? I ended up doing a lot of accidental research while pregnant and for me, it really shone the bright light on the maternity care in Ireland and we have a lot to answer for and that came in from Emma that's actually taken my breath away I know um, because you know what I'd like I think so many women are the same as Emma that you can't say it out loud I Sorry. know um, but Suzanne so fresh for you like it really is so so fresh uh, I like I, I think that we did and we are yeah. immersing ourselves in baby bubbles because that's what's keeping us with our heads above water because I know for me and for so many women um, and parents had their babies in the pandemic that we survive. Yeah. I just felt like I survived it and that I I actually couldn't look at it. And thrive you know, in uh, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and go, this is what happened because it was almost like we just put our heads down and I just, the description there of what Emma had said is that I think that we are, I know that for me with Sadie, I just tried to savour every second of her because mm. The reality of, I know we're going to talk about more story today of, of those things that my husband missed or I, my phone keeps now reminding me because I kept sending Joey pictures of me on my own in the waiting room because like he just needed to know I was okay mm. sitting there. Mm-hmm. And now Time Hop keeps reminding me of, you know, because we're, we're going towards now nearly a year since I had Sadie. Um and I, I, that feeling that it's like, we're not going mad. You're not going mad. You're surviving. You're just yeah, surviving. Yeah, I just don't think women can. Sue, your most recent appointment, how did that go? I was in the hospital yesterday. So I'm uh, 36 weeks now. And um, I have to go into a diabetic clinic because I have gestational diabetes. So I was in outpatients. Now, I, I don't know if you saw Professor Malone's video at the weekend. He was stressing that um, outpatients is a very busy department. And it is. It's a really busy department because you have 
um, several different clinics that can run in a day and you have a lot of booking scans and everything coming in and out of there. But he said that uh, they were trying to minimize it to 60, 70 people. So it wasn't going to be too crowded. When I was in there the other day, a man had checked in with his partner and when she arrived for her booking scan, she was on her own. So he had clearly left the hospital. And beside me at one stage, there was another couple where a security guard came in and tried to kick him out. What I couldn't understand about being kicked out was there was only five women in outpatients at the time. I actually counted them. So I can't, like, if it's overcrowded and they can't have somebody waiting, I can understand that. They can come in for the scan. But I can't understand why you come in and kick out somebody when there's the the outpatients isn't packed. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but fair play to him, he stuck up for himself and he said, no, the nurse told me to be here and I'm not going. So I was like, yes. So well, thankfully he had the voice to do it because so many partners just go, yeah. Oh. Okay, in a know. medical situation, most yeah. of us are overwhelmed yeah. anyway. And especially if this is a first time pregnancy for anybody, you're literally doing what you're, what's you're being told. asked of you, yeah. what you're told to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And there is kind of a certain, like when you're having your first, there's an assumption that you know where everything is in the hospital, you know where to go, you know who to talk. And it's it's not, it's really hard. Like I remember when they took me aside for my first pregnancy and, and started asking me questions about uh, domestic violence and stuff like that and had separated me from my husband. I'm delighted that they ask those questions and they bring women aside and they check in on them. That's really, really good. But I didn't know that was coming up, but I was really like, so, uh, what? no, I'm, f- I'm fine. I'm Everything's okay. Like, it's just, I, I just feel like they're so used to doing it, but they don't give people a chance to actually navigate that. Like, it's, it can be hard. It's your first time in there. You're terrified. You're waiting to see if your baby's okay, you know. Suzanne was as well like you have read through so many stories Mm. of which we only just shared one right now and how are you feeling yourself right now like you're very very close to your second baby and reading all these stories yeah like what I was really surprised about was the amount of people I knew that got in contact with me that I didn't know their story and that's actually really heartbreaking that there's somebody I know that went through something and they never they never mentioned it I got one of the mess actually I'll just read it out really quickly it's a, a short message from a friend of mine, um, she just put a message about the podcast and said, it's brilliant women are actually getting a voice now. I had an awful time with my daughter. She was born right at the start of the pandemic. I had her the Wednesday and the country had gone into lockdown the Monday before. My husband was only allowed in for the birth and then told to leave. I laboured in the car park so I could be with him until it was time to deliver. And then he was allowed in with me. As if that wasn't bad enough, two weeks later, I had a near fatal postpartum hemorrhage and had to go in on my own. I'm on medication now for PTSD because of it. It was all absolutely horrible. Seeing people can go to weddings or go wherever, but we have to do the hardest thing in the world on our own. It's sick. Sue and Suzanne, I was thinking about this during the week as well. Is this, and maybe this is because I didn't actually go into labor, but is the idea of active labor, where is this a new, like I know it's not medically a new concept, but it's the first time I've heard it being thrown around for this scenario, for admission into hospital for the partners. It seems to be there. I don't know if you agree, Sue, but it's, it seems to be like somewhere along the line they went, okay, where is our, you know, yeah. what's our what's our point? And it became active labour became that point. Um, but then again, every hospital had a different idea of what that looked like or how far, how many centimetres you had to be or did you have a bed in labour ward? And so, it, it, you know, the variation of what it was just seemed to change all the time. And see, what struck me about your story about um, that lady labouring in her car, which was a very familiar sight for me when I was attending, was seeing women, you know, staying in the car. But that hemorrhage after, what kind of reigns very true, I think, for a lot of women is that we all, well, not all, I suppose that's, a bit of, you know, a general generalisation, but a lot of women came home very quickly after having their babies. Mm-hmm. When they could have done with an extra night in the hospital. Now, be that for medical or emotional reasons, mm-hmm. that they had that extra bit of support but they went, I want to get home because my person is at home, whoever yeah. that person was. And they've medically put themselves in danger. And I think that that hemorrhage story is kind of, you know, ringing true with a lot of women, you know, in different 
things that have happened that they've left the hospital too soon. Yeah, they should have been there. But because their person could not get into the hospital to them, they ran the risk and went, you know what, I'm going to get home because at least I have that person there. And it is a risk. Yeah. And it, it could be just down to that they'd had a section and they couldn't get up to feed baby or to change their baby or get themselves organized or get up and have a shower and have someone mind the baby that they went, I'll just go home. It's, it's a better option. And they've medically put themselves, you know, at, at, yeah, at, mm-hmm. at, as that woman, like massively at risk. So that seems to be a lot of stories that I heard. And again, the amount of people who got in touch via DMs on Instagram, just to say, and I like, you know, I don't want to sound condescending in any way, but like, just to say thank you. And that's incredibly like humbling for me, but I'm so honored just to be here with this group of women and and let, you know, these people tell their stories because it's just so important. And that was really echoed in my DMs this week mm-hmm. of that people just saying thank you, like that Definitely. to hear somebody say it out loud, you know, like Emma was saying there that, that mm-hmm. you know, they're not alone that, you know, they're not going mad, you know, that they feel the way they feel. And that's, you know, that's okay to feel that way. And I actually spoke to, I have a friend who's a psychotherapist and I spoke to her about it because I was like, I feel, I just feel like I'm not equipped to help these people at all. Like, and she said, but it doesn't matter because the thing you're doing is listening and you're validating their story. And that's what, that's what people want is they want to be heard. You are helping, Sue, definitely, you and Dee, by getting this to come together. And the person that you spoke to this week for the podcast, this episode, too, had a story that is so familiar to thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, Maura McAlone. Um, actually, Maura, Maura and myself had babies around a similar time. I think there's only about six weeks, maybe two months between them. And I had got out just before restrictions. Um, she had obviously had her baby during restrictions. But we both felt very isolated as first-time mothers and were finding it difficult. And we've never met. <laughs> we've only met virtually on Twitter and on Instagram. And we kind of leaned into each other a little bit just to have a oh my God, this is good. This is really hard. Like at one point she talks about like, can you die from tiredness can you? The, on the podcast? And I remember, <laughs> I, I think you can in the first few weeks, but um, I remember her tweeting that and I remember replying to her because I remember feeling that alone six weeks earlier when I was up in the middle of the night breastfeeding in another room while my husband was asleep and I was like, I am so, I just felt so alone. And that's not, my, obviously not my husband's fault. He was helping me as much as he could. But you didn't have your support network. You didn't have mothers around. And her story is really heartbreaking as well because she obviously had, the baby had a medical condition and she heard that news on her own. And it's just that, that support, it's like mm-hmm. I, we're hearing that over and over and over again. Is when women are hearing bad news or is there, there's something happening, there's something wrong. Women are hearing it on their own and they shouldn't be. And then they mm-hmm. have to relay it to their partner. Like, I, I just think that's a horrible position to be putting women in. But um, I just, uh, her story, I think, is just so like so many women. She's a first time mother, not, not knowing what to expect, going in on her own. And I think she tells it really well. Hi, I'm Maura McElhone and I'm a, a writer and author. Um, I live in County Kildare with my husband and my almost 16-month-old lockdown baby, not a baby anymore, almost a toddler, Cole. I found out I was pregnant in September of 2019. Um, COVID wasn't really on anybody's radar at all at that stage. It certainly wasn't on mine. Um, It was just, I think, January of the following year, we started hearing the news from um, China. It was kind of at that side of the world. And still, even then, it it wasn't factoring into our consciousness over here. And my husband was with me for those initial, um, for my dating scan, for those initial appointments with the consultant, things like that. Um, So I had, for all intents and purposes, a normal, lovely kind of first trimester into the second trimester. Um, And it was actually in March we had booked a weekend away for a baby moon and we were actually on our baby moon um, when the Taoiseach, then Taoiseach Leo Varadkar made the announcement that we were going into lockdown um, due to COVID. And again, in my head, and I think this is probably a thing, especially with your first baby, um, I was thinking, oh, my due date is months off. This isn't going to impact me at all. Um, Then the following week, I got a call from 
the my consultant's secretary to ask me to come to my next appointment alone could my husband wait in the car so that was just a routine checkup um, and I was happy enough to go by myself again at that stage everybody was thinking we locked down for two weeks whatever it was two or three weeks and this be lifted grand no bother as it turned out there were no more appointments that my husband was with me for that was it so I think the last one we would have had together was probably we had the 20 week scan he was there for that thank god um and all was well um so i think maybe february maybe there might have been one there he was there with me for that but that was it um and then even as my due date approached there still i just i don't know i didn't feel any real sense of panic it just wasn't registering with me but i think that's because i am a first time mummy and i didn't know what to expect and even the what was more pressing of a concern to me was that if I had the baby while lockdown was still in place, my parents wouldn't be able to come down and meet him or visit me there in County Derry, where I'm from. And um, obviously I was in Kildare. So that was, the I think, the thing that was pressing on me. Um, Cole is their first grandchild. Um, I'm their eldest child. All the rest of it, it was just there was a lot of firsts. And that was the main thing. They I was worried they were going to miss out. Um, so the night I went into labor then again first time mommy had been in early labor all day didn't really cop just thought I was generally in bad form and grumpy and grouchy and all the rest of it and my waters broke that night around midnight and I sort of said to my husband it's go time we have to go to Hollis Street um rang them to let them know I was coming in I went in they actually the the midwife on the phone said when you come can you just your husband can more or less leave you at the door can you come in by yourself and again this was this was the middle middle to late May it was actually the day Cole was born was the first day that they started to ease the first set of restrictions so there was quite a sense of kind of hope and optimism at that point um but obviously as we know now, well over a year later, the maternity restrictions were not being lifted. There was no way. Um, so I was asked to kind of just leave my husband at the door of the hospital and go on in. So I was there in my pajamas and he was told to wait outside with all the bags. I went into Hollis Street, filled in the paperwork and went up. They did an exam and said to me, oh, you're not in active labor yet. So your husband can go home and he can come back in once you're in active labor. Now, like I was in enough labor that I was uncomfortable and I knew that I was going to be having a baby soon. So to be told that you're not in active labor doesn't really mean an awful lot. And especially when it's your first time going through it, you don't really know what's going on. Um, so I sort of thought, okay, well, I'm going to be in here for a day, two days, whatever it is. Um, he was allowed to they asked him to leave the bag that I would need and a porter would bring it up. So I'd packed my three separate bags, whatever it was, and my husband left the bag with the porter. He brought it up. Um, because I didn't really understand what was happening, I didn't ask for my labour bag. I asked for my bag for the ward because they told me I was going to the antenatal ward. So I kind of thought he'd be there while I'm in the full blown labor I can get my labor bag then so I went onto the ward with my bag they um, midwives pointed me in the direction of the bathrooms and they said oh if, if you want to have a shower that's where the showers are showed me to my bed and that was kind of it and I sort of looked at the bed and looked at my bag and was like uh right so um the significance of the bag thing it was the wrong bag it wasn't my labor bag so I didn't have my toiletries to have a shower I didn't have any of that stuff um I kind of just had to just go and like have a shower and put on the night clothes that I'd brought for after I had the baby. It just, it wasn't the way I'd planned it. And that kind of was making me a bit stressed out. And there was nobody I could ask for um, to go and get that bag for me to get the, the toiletries that I needed. It's just those little things that in hindsight would have made a difference to that experience at that time. Um, and my contractions were coming the reason they kept me in, even though I wasn't in active labor, they kept me in because my contractions were coming every 10 minutes and they were quite strong. Um, so they, they didn't, they weren't in good conscience able to send me home because I was coming in from Kildare. So it was a long enough journey. So they kept me in. Um, I went back to the bed at that stage and I had brought a TENS machine with me. 
And then I realized I can't put this on by myself. I have nobody to put this on. So I then had to leave my bed, walk out, having contractions, <laughs> go and find the nurses at the nurse's station and ask someone to come and help me put on a TENS machine. So did that and then was kind of shown how to work at once and then was essentially sat there holding the TENS machine, pressing it every time I felt a contraction. Uh, it just, and I felt like it wasn't really doing anything for me, but I had nobody to say, oh, can you help me reposition the, the sensors or just those wee things. Um, contractions were getting stronger and stronger and the one thing that sticks out in my mind is I was looking at my phone battery and my phone battery was running down and all I wanted to do was put a charger into the wall to charge my phone but at that point the contractions were getting too intense and I just didn't have the wherewithal to get out of the bed to go and get the charger out of my bag to charge to put the plug into the wall to charge the phone because that was my only source of contact with the outside world and I just I wasn't physically able to do that and I remember ringing the emergency button and I knew in my head I was like this is not an emergency this does not constitute an emergency but just I just wanted somebody to come and help me do that one simple task um, and then it got to the point um, contractions were getting really intense and like a midwife was coming by every so often but there was nobody there sitting with me and they'd come by and they'd say oh I'll be back in a minute and then they'd be gone for another 10 or 15 minutes which when you're in early labor like that feels like a lifetime um and I remember at one point begging for some sort of pain relief I was like please can you give me something there has to be something you can give me and I kept being told we can't give you anything until you're in active labor and I said, I'm fairly sure, like, I have to be there. This does not feel right. And they said, oh, well, we can't determine that unless you have a physical exam. You'll have to consent to a physical exam. And I was almost throwing my hands up saying, I consent, I consent, give me the exam. Just give me some sort of pain relief. Um, but for whatever reason, I, I know their resources were low, all the rest of it. Um, I didn't get the exam for a long time. And I remember hearing, like, another woman just letting roars out of her and... I was kind of dealing with it. I was remembering everything, all the research I'd done, all the planning I tried to do. I remembered the hopscotch that you're supposed to do during labor. And I remember at one point a midwife coming along and telling me, oh, reposition yourself, try getting on all fours. But you can barely sit up when you're in having those sorts of contractions. Like that's when you need your birth partner beside you, helping you change positions on the bed, helping you stand up, walk out to the showers, whatever it might be. When you're by yourself, you do not physically trust your body to be able to do that. So I wasn't able to do anything that I'd planned for or hoped to be able to do. Um, and then eventually um, they came and I think they were just kind of, I think they were kind of getting close to being like, okay, I think she might actually be in active labor. Um, and they just did a quick check to see how I was doing, how the baby was doing. And there was something amiss because the girl, whoever it was, had done the little check Um she sort of rang a button or rang an alarm or something and I could kind of glean that the, the baby wasn't as active as he should have been or something like that so they asked me to turn over on my side I think they were having trouble either finding his heartbeat or maybe his heartbeat was kind of going too fast or something again I couldn't process what was happening around me and I didn't have anybody else taking in the information to tell me after the fact um so I think what it was they kind of laughed it off after and said oh baby didn't like you being on your side so he was obviously responding to the position that I was in and they were able to rectify what the issue was by getting me into a different position um and eventually they they did the internal exam and they told me what the midwife actually said was this baby's coming soon and she said you can ring your well no I said I need to ring my husband and she was more or less like okay we'll ring him so I then had to ring Sean tell him to come in and then, and I still, to this day, I will never forget the midwife saying this to me. She said, I think you can do this without an epidural. And I, like, I hadn't said at that point to her specifically, I want an epidural. She was just telling me that she felt that I could do it without an epidural. And I felt like saying to her, that's grand, but you're not having the baby. So you can just keep that opinion to yourself. And um, I don't, I don't think I did say that, but I probably maybe communicated it in some other ways. So I think at that point I was four centimeters um, and I hadn't had any pain relief at all and I was just ready for the hills but they brought me then put me in a wheelchair and brought me to the delivery suite 
um, and started me on gas and air. So that was the first pain relief I'd had. And that helped. But um, and I had had an open mind about whether or not I wanted the epidural. At that point, I was like, I'm not being a hero here. Well, I already am a hero because I'm here doing this. Give me the epidural. So um, I think they it was probably about another hour by the time I had the prep work done and everything. Um, got the epidural my husband by the time he arrived I was full of the joys of spring and he says that by the time he came in I was in flying form I was having jokes with the midwives that were there with the consultant so like and this is something I look back on he missed the horrors of labor um and I I think I just I feel that that was it's an experience that brings kind of parents together it's the kind of the first real sort of really intense shared experience um in those minutes before you become parents for the first time and he wasn't there for that and you see kind of and you see in movies and you hear people talking about oh my wife was amazing and she was so strong and all this sort of thing and I do feel like I wish he'd been there to see me go through that because I, yeah it's hard to describe I just it's something I don't know it's women who've gone through childbirth there's no experience like it and you you do feel like an absolute warrior after you go through it and I think for your husband to see you go through something like that it does probably alter how he sees you in his mind hopefully for the better um and I think I would hope that probably there's a lot of men that would have a lot more respect and admiration even than they did before for their wives or partners once they see them go through something like that and I feel like I didn't get that he wasn't there to see that he knows he has an idea of what it must have been like because I don't shut up talking about it <laughs> and I give out yards to him after but he didn't get to witness it and I kind of feel like that was something we missed out on um as a couple um but he was there for the birth and I know I'm extremely fortunate for him to have been there for that um and um but even at that he I mean he came in and Cole was born within an hour and a half of Sean arriving like it, it happened very fast for a first time mother and father um so I can only imagine the shell shock that he must have been in he left me at the door of a hospital came back an hour and a half he had a baby so um I think in total from the time he dropped me off to the time Cole was born it was less than nine hours so it was fast um and then he was allowed, he stayed with me for two hours and that was it then. Um, I was brought up to the room and we were fortunate enough, we went privately and in the normal course of business, it would have been fantastic to have had my own room. But again, looking back now, because the restrictions were at their highest at that point, he wasn't allowed back to visit me at all during my hospital stay. Nobody visited me. So it was essentially me in this room with a new baby for three days by ourselves and that was fairly intense um to say the least you don't know what you're doing I was trying to breastfeed trying to get to grips with that and even just the wee things like people talk about like the those meals that you get those first few days after you become a mother and the lovely breakfast and the tea and toast and how much you appreciate it but I had nobody to hold the baby I don't think I finished a single meal that I got brought in those days because the baby cries you have to be the one to get out of the bed and go and pick it up. Um, you have to be the one to change the nappy. Like there's no, somebody else can hold him for 10 minutes or five minutes. Um, so that was very full on. And then the other thing with Cole as well was um, they come and they do those, the basic kind of health checks with the baby in the first couple of days. And again, I was a, a first time mother. I didn't know what they were. I just, they were assumed they were all sort of par for the course. Um and the pediatrician came along at one point and said she was doing the just the, the kind of the basic top to toe um head to toe check and she said she was checking his hips and then she said oh I think I feel a clicky hip here and I sort of was like oh I don't know what that means and then the next thing she said to me was um we'll want to get him scanned so we'll, and then of course you hear that you've got a new baby who then has to be scanned and just panic stations and my husband had had a full hip replacement two years previously and he's getting his other hip replaced now at the end of this month so there is kind of a genetic thing of um just I suppose and um, well what we now know to be hip dysplasia in the family but I didn't know that was the term for it at the time um so they took the baby away that same day to get him scanned um 
and then brought him back and told me I would have the results within a day, whatever it was. So again, I was on the phone to my husband, to my mummy, to my friends back at home, telling them there may or may not be something wrong with the baby's hips. I don't know yet. I have to wait for the results. Um, then when I did get the results, I think it was the next day, the evening of the next day, they came in and more or less just told me, yes, your baby has hip dysplasia. He'll be going home in a harness. So to hear that, like, I know immediately I was on Google kind of researching what that meant and all the rest of it. And I know in the grand scheme of kind of bad news you can get about a baby in its first few days of life, it's nothing bad. And they can and normally do make a full recovery from wearing a pavlic harness. But when it's your first baby, you don't assume there's going to be any issues. And you kind of think once you have the baby in those kind of initial few hours and everything's cleared that you're in the clear. Um, so to hear that you're not going to be bringing your baby home just in kind of the little bundle of blankets that you thought he would be, that it'd be going home in some sort of harness contraption. Like that was fairly traumatic news to hear. Um, and then I had to ring home and tell my husband that again, tell my family that, and then they were all kind of researching what that meant. So that was just hard news to get as well by myself when I haven't slept in two nights and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I remember my consultant coming into me at one point and just kind of asking how I was doing. And I just cried and was trying to communicate to her about the hip thing and everything else. And she was like, look, have you slept? And I said, no. And she took the baby and asked a midwife just to watch him for an hour just so that I could sleep. Again, that's something that had partners been allowed in. I may have been able to deal with that news slightly better. Like his daddy could have taken him my parents could have taken him just you know it just those little things that in hindsight would have been made so much better or more bearable had there been the support of partners there um I'm trying to think was there yeah and then the other thing that, that sticks out was the day we were discharged so we stayed an extra night because we had to get those scans done and results back and everything like that um the morning of discharge then I remember just being told oh like you need to be out we need the room by 11 a.m but there was no offer of can we help you pack up your stuff can we help you get baby dressed um and then I was told as well that the physio would be up to put the baby in the harness to show me how the harness worked how to change the nappy through the harness how to manage all that kind of stuff um so I kind of was left my own devices to get myself out of bed get dressed get the baby dressed wait for the physio to come up learn how to put on the harness remember to feed him when he needed fed and uh, just I just remember sitting in bed thinking I don't want to start this process because I don't feel like I have the energy or the strength to be able to finish it and I just wish someone would come in and help me um so yeah it just wasn't the the first few days of motherhood that I thought it would be and that I had in mind um and I know a lot of women have gone through a lot worse than that but I think we all kind of have these ideas of what it will be like. And maybe it worked in my favor that I was a first time mother and it was the very start of the pandemic. So I hadn't heard the horror stories of what other women had gone through first. So I didn't have that fear going in. But I do think that now further down the line, when I look back, there's still things that I'm trying to process and there's still things that I just struggle with the injustice of it and the needlessness of it as well so I think yeah that was my experience of those first few days with no visitors no family no partner through labor at any stage as far as I was concerned and there was the, like wee simple things at one stage I think one of the nurses said to me have you showered yet and other than that first shower that you have literally after you give birth I hadn't had a shower but I felt like I couldn't because there was nobody to watch the baby. And if I went in to have a shower and A, if something happened to me, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to like pass out in the shower and not be able to get to the baby. If I was in the shower and he started crying, I didn't want a midwife to come in and think I wasn't looking after my baby because I was in having a shower. Normally you can take five minutes because your partner is there or a parent is there or somebody is there. But I just, I didn't feel like I could leave his side and that is something that is a mindset that I think I have carried through to this day and I have said to Sean my husband I was so anxious in those first few months like bringing the baby home as well and we were still again this was pre-vaccine everything 
I asked my consultant, could my parents hold him when they were able to visit him for the first time when he was six weeks old? I was just so anxious about everything. And even now I get anxious about leaving him. I think the the longest time I've been away from him was just a couple of weeks ago there at my sister's wedding and my sister-in-law and her husband took him for the night. They stayed in the same hotel. He was literally only a few rooms away from us, but that's the furthest and the longest I've been away from him yet. And I do think it, it was because largely because of those, the intensity of those three days and just, it was just he and I from those early kind of stages of labor right through the first few days of his life. It was literally just the two of us against the world. And it has been a very hard thing for me to kind of even be willing to try and relinquish that kind of control or that little bond to let other people in. And I do think that is that is a side effect of giving birth amidst the pandemic restrictions. And that was Moira who kindly shared her story with us and she spoke to Sue earlier in the week. And as always, we're looking for you guys to get in touch. It's maternity at goloudnow.com. So uh, as we are every week, Linda from Women Ascend joins us uh, to continue the conversation. Uh, Linda, how are you doing this week uh, after the podcast launching last week? How are you finding the response? Oh, just, I think, so powerful. People are, I think it's exactly what you said earlier, Suzanne. People are so grateful to see their story being reflected back at them because it has been absent from the public discourse over the course of the pandemic. You know, we've been talking about pubs opening. We've been talking about GA. We've been talking about schools. And there hasn't been as much focus on an entire generation of women who are giving birth to the next generation um, and who are really experiencing transformative life events in very, very difficult circumstances. So there is lots and lots of gratitude coming through, but it also has, I suppose, on a personal level, made me really fired up. We're meeting the HSC in an hour to talk about how we progress on the restrictions again and You know, there are times when it does feel futile. You know, people often ask me, you know, why do you keep doing it? How do you keep doing it? And like everybody else, there are times when I absolutely want to throw in the towel because I feel, what's the point? You know, the structures are too big. The barriers are too um, institutionalized. But seeing the response from people to the podcast has made me just feel, no, we'll go again because we just can't leave it where it is. You know, it's not good enough. We're not moving far enough. We're not going fast enough. And they just have to get on board. Like they have to get on board with getting back to a situation where there is pre-pandemic access for one nominated support partner at a minimum. What do you think is the holdup? Hmm. <laughs> How long do we have for the podcast? A day, two days? Uh, no, I think, look, there is a few things. There is a legitimate concern around COVID spreading in a hospital environment. That is a very genuine concern. And I think the people who have that concern from an infection control point of view, they're coming out of a pandemic particularly we'd say their experience in nursing homes whereby the virus got into nursing homes and we know how devastating it was. So they're coming from that very real lived experience and, you know, are now have, I think, a very similar fear around maternity hospitals. And I think, you know, we have had that conversation with them around the fact that it is our shared goal to deliver services safely everybody wants that women and their partners don't want the service to be unsafe either and but there are layers to the safety aspect so it is not safe for women to be laboring in car parks it is not safe for women to be laboring at home because they are delaying going to the hospital because they're scared of being separated it is not safe in the postpartum period for people to be on their own so Their safety measure is very, very singular and not a holistic approach at all of what pregnancy and birth means to an individual. And so we've been pushing that conversation with them. I think the other piece and the kind of harder, more invisible piece is that the health service is a hugely political organization and has a hugely political culture. And there are absolutely 
I'll use a phrase I heard from Ellen Coyne because it's the most polite way to say it, but there is a lot of willy-waving going on amongst different cohorts of management because there is a national HSE structure who very much share our goal of getting back to one nominated partner having pre-pandemic access. And then there are 19 different subsets of managers in hospitals saying, I won't be dictated to by those fellas up in Dublin. And then in the middle, you have these hospital groups, which is a layer of management that have no statutory function anymore. And that the HSE actually before COVID decided they were going to morph into something else who are just sat in the middle, kind of shrugging their shoulders saying, I know you want this on the left hand, but I can't get the managers to do X on the right hand. And so I'm just going to sit here and throw my hands up in the air. And that's kind of actually the reality of it. You know, it's there's other kind of, you know, there's more longer term bits as well, Alison, around the fact that, you know, the national maternity strategy wasn't invested in and wasn't implemented before COVID. But ultimately now, I think it's really important. There was an attempt, I think, by the minister a few weeks ago to try and conflate you know, the lack of investment pre-COVID with these restrictions, you know, they the, uh, you, people would have heard him in the media saying, well, you know, actually these restrictions aren't because of COVID, there's long-standing issues. That is absolutely a red herring to try and justify where we are at the moment. Linda, can I ask you as well, the thing that's come to the forefront in the last few weeks is just the idea of access, support access um, versus, you know, public versus private patients. Yeah, it's definitely been a tension in the system, Alison, um, and no clear cut um, sense of it either, because I have had messages from people who are going privately to clinics and one consultant in the clinic is saying a partner can attend and another consultant in the clinic is saying, sorry, no, the person can't attend. Um, And then you have the situation whereby, take Limerick, for example, they published their updated restrictions um, a few days ago, and they have longer, they have longer visiting hours for people who are in single rooms. Now, that wasn't the intention of the HSE guidelines. But as we pointed out to them, it was going to be the consequence of them. Because when you demarcate services based on access to a single room, or a multi bed ward, it becomes a public private battle. And that is totally unfair to people who are already in a really, really difficult situation. And if we can actually touch on that point, Moira talks a lot in her piece in this podcast about how she's in a private room for three days with her baby on her own and she's not able to, de- you know, finish tea and toast even because uh, she has to hold the baby the whole time because she's on her own. So some people might think, oh, that sounds much better, like that's a much better deal. But being in a room on your own with a newborn baby and maybe nobody visiting or checking in on you uh, for hours at a time would be completely isolating. Yeah, and when I was listening to Moira the loneliness, like the sheer cliff face of loneliness and the intensity of that feeling that you feel when you're on your own in that postpartum period, because I was the same as more. I didn't have any visitors. It just felt so real again to me, listening to her describe it in the hospital, not being able to, you know, eat a slice of toast or have like I love a cup of tea didn't have a cup of tea for three days. Um, And they are small things, uh, but yet they're the things that either make something bearable or make something unbearable. And I think there is something really important as well about Maura's story where she talked about her husband not being there to bear witness to the experience. And I think it's one of those that we absolutely need to talk about more because it's been my little girl is 14 months and only in the last number of weeks of myself and my husband been able to actually talk about what it was like to be separated for those first few days of her life the impact it had on me the impact it had on him and then all of that comes out in your family unit as well and we couldn't have had that conversation before now because we weren't ready so there's lots and lots of long-term impacts that these restrictions are having on a really human level and there is no recognition of that. We've seen one single risk assessment from one hospital and it pays no attention to the mental health impact of the restrictions. It pays no heed to the impact on families. It is just about infection control 
And we're talking about this as if hospitals haven't always had to deal with infectious diseases. Like hospitals have always had to deal with infectious diseases. That's not actually new to them. So I think we need to come up with a better system at this stage of the pandemic. In Maura's story, the thing that kind of that struck me was about saying about that kind of alone part of the exclusion. And when I went in to labour and they put the trace on your belly, my husband was like, oh, the noise. And I was like, what are you like? What are you talking about? Then what are you saying? And he was like, the heartbeat. Listen, and it occurred to me that that was the first time he'd heard our baby's heartbeat because he hadn't been to any scan. He'd. And when I was, um, it's so funny, I look at people now and I, I was so nervous going into every single appointment. I looked at someone the other day and they put up a, a, a memory on their Instagram and it was their baby's heartbeat. But at no point did I, I was shaking so much. I never picked my phone up to record a heartbeat because I just wanted to make sure we had a heartbeat. And then for GDPR, when I went in to have my big scan, you're not allowed to film. Mm. So I couldn't FaceTime Joey to go here, you can do the big scan with me you're not allowed to film it at all so I could just take a picture of the screen and be like we have a baby there everything looks good from what they can see and I've never really understood that either Suzanne because my 20-week scan my 20-week scan happened just the week after that the whole country shut down and I went in and I was like can I ring my husband like can I video call him or can I record it And I mean, the response was just like a thundering look of just like like I was poo on somebody's shoe, you know, like, how dare you even ask that? And the person got really, really tense. And like, I just can't fathom like in like it's now 18 or 19 months on from that. And yet, like, you know, hospitals aren't using technology to monitor people coming in and out of outpatients. They're not using technology to assist around scans. Like, we're, it's like the hospitals are living in the dark ages, as if they're somehow, like, totally aside from all the rest of society. And I just can't fathom it, really and truly, at this stage. As you say that, the same thing is that, like, uh, by a side note, so Sadie was born on the 3rd of December, right? So then... I'm waiting the 4th of December for Joey. He's, no, I mean, he's queuing. He like sent me a message going first in, best dressed. He's queuing at the door of the hospital. He's first in line. And he got there at half one because he wanted to get his parking space, make sure he wasn't queuing to get through reception to show his pink slip. And the door opened in my room. And like that, I, I, was, I was in a private room on my own. And the door opened in my room. And there was two electricians standing outside hanging Christmas lights. And so I remember, they had access. But I remember going... Come here, listen, if their other halves were in having babies, they're primed for visiting because they're doing the Christmas lights. So they could do the... But, so I, but I remember going, how can they come in and stick up Christmas lights? Don't get me wrong. I'm a massive fan of a Christmas light. But I'm like, my husband is priority. standing outside. Yeah, it's not priority. In three degrees at the top of the queue, standing for a half an hour with the rest of the partners waiting to get in. And there's two lads outside whistling jingle bells sticking up a set of lights like even at that point and I understand we weren't vaccinated or any of those things but I was like Christmas lights priority my other half not priority. TV crew priority construction crews like I got so many messages from people to say that their hospital was doing construction work so they were taking advantage of the lower footfall to have crews in to do construction so like Mullingar, Cork and a number of other places And again, you have to, and mostly cosmetic as well, construction work. And you have to wonder if, like, from an infection control point of view, so, like, in an hour, I will meet the head of infection control from the HSC, and he will tell me that every single person who crosses the threshold of a hospital is an infection control risk. I can understand that. That's how infection control operates. And hospitals had people putting up Christmas lights, construction crews, film crews in and you know there's a total disconnect there between justifying this as a covid restriction and then also opening yourself up to covid in a hospital environment that just boggles the mind and i think people would have seen me say it a lot you know there are kind of two phrases i would use a lot for all of these restrictions one which would be way far too impolite for this podcast but the other is just make it make sense that's all people want make it make sense 
Linda, that statement is really, really powerful. Make it make sense. And you're doing such incredible work. Of course, you'll have an update for us in episode three next week in the podcast. Um, But you also have a march to tell us about. Yeah, so next Wednesday on the 6th of October at 1pm, we are organising the March for Maternity, which will be outside Dáil Éireann on Kildare Street, just on the corner there by Buswell's Hotel. So we would encourage everybody who is able to come to that uh, protest to attend on Wednesday at 1pm. So that's almost it for this week. Uh, Before we go, as always, we do want to thank the frontline healthcare workers We really know how hard they have worked over the past 19 and 20 months. Um, And I know like that, so many healthcare workers feel like so many parents because they too are parents or they are very much on the coalface of what's going on across our maternity hospitals. So for them, we are very thankful um, and we haven't forgotten about them in this podcast either. And that's exactly why we'll be talking to some of them across this series and their own experiences facing, you know, helping women face the most challenging times of their lives. Ultimately, the only people who should be held to account here is the government. And as always, we asked today's guest what they'd said, what they would say to the Taoiseach and Health Minister if they could. And we leave you with Maura's thoughts on that. I saw Stephen Donnelly's message about his plans for the year to come and what he wants to do for women and all the rest of it. And I just, I like, it's almost unbelievable to read because there's women currently literally crying out for um, change for some evidence that the government is on our side and willingness to give us the willing to give us the support that we're asking for and it just seems like it's falling on deaf ears so to come out and say women are a really important part of what I'm campaigning for and central to my plans it just feels completely disingenuous and it just feels like he's trying to do it for brownie points but I don't know where they're going to come from because I can't see them coming from anybody who's had a baby in the last year or is having a baby anytime soon in terms of a message for the Taoiseach he's a father himself he's seen his wife go through this he has been through his own hardships with regard to children I just think like it this it comes down to compassion um I think at its at its core um an understanding he knows what women are going through I would plead to the compassionate side of him in that regard lift these restrictions and let women have the support they need on a more practical and science-based side we have the vaccines there are practical measures that can be taken to ensure that the women themselves that their partners that staff in these hospitals stay safe and are protected from covid so we should be doing whatever we can to ensure that those um, that those measures are actioned um, so that women have the support they need to give birth um, in the, the, the best way possible, I suppose. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is a Go Loud original podcast produced at Go Loud Studios and proudly supported by our partners across Bauer Media Audio Ireland. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends and family to check it out too. And if today's guest has inspired you to share your story, get in touch with us at maternity at goloudnow.com and check out the Better Maternity Care hashtag on social media to find out how you can get involved with the organisations we've discussed. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is researched and produced by Sue Murphy, who co-hosts with Alison Curtis and Suzanne Kane. Executive produced by D. Reddy with editing and sound design by Owen Brennan.